0: Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined with Rand Fishkin, co-founder and CEO of SparkToro. Thanks for joining me today, Rand.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie.
0: I'm really excited for this episode as someone who's, you know, been a marketing nerd and and worked in organizations previously that have been very focused on audiences and as someone who has used Sparktoro, the tool that you guys have built, I'm really looking forward to this. And so, I think I want to kind of start by going back to the beginning and could you take me back to the beginning of like when you were coming up with Sparktoro? Like what kind of prompted that in in your mm-hmm. guys' minds? You obviously have a big background with Moz and marketing and all that side of things like why audience research and why SparkToro?
1: Yeah, fair, fair question. So I like to think about things from a opportunity, skills, and passion perspective. I think that's yeah. I think those three really connect up for me how I want to contribute in the world. And actually, a lot of the times how I recommend other people contribute in the world. Like, do you have something you like to do? Yeah. Uh, are you are you uniquely good at that thing? And is there opportunity in that sector? And if the answer to all three of those things can be yes. Wow. You have a beautiful opportunity ahead of you. <laughs> you know, in, in my case, obviously I had a background in marketing software. So I've, I've built and developed marketing software. I've made every mistake in the book. Well, maybe not everyone, but so many that it, uh, I'll never be able to uh, count them all. And I had a significant presence in the sort of universe of marketers seeking out software to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. So people generally have an association of, you know, Rand Fishkin, either he's the SEO person, which I've been trying to get away from the last four years, (laughs) or uh, he knows his stuff when it comes to marketing software. And if he's building something new in marketing software world, maybe I should go check it out. Um, And then I also have some had and continue to have some strong passion around what I'd essentially call breaking away from the historic pattern that dominates the marketing and advertising industry of throwing money at Google and Facebook and to a lesser extent, Amazon, if you're in Mm e-commerce and just letting them sort out all your targeting. And I think this is, look, this is where, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars are spent every year in the marketing world Uh, almost every other marketing channel combined doesn't equal it. It's sort of sad to me that these these two, three corporations who are monopolies in their space control Mm -hmm. so much of our online attention and then monetize that through online advertising. And I feel like two things are true. One, that's not good for individuals or society or businesses or the world. And two, it's a terrible way to get a competitive advantage in marketing. Mm-hmm. So you know, the first one sort of appeals to the broad, big picture. What kind of change do I want to make in the world? Yeah, you know, look, I mean, I'm not fighting disease or you know helping folks get vaccinated or those kinds of things. But I, I'm trying to make a difference in the world that that I can participate in, mm-hmm. which is marketing and advertising. And then yeah. that second one is my passion for helping individuals marketers like yourself right like me when i was at moz mm-hmm. and 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 helping us to understand our online audiences behaviors and attributes so that we can go reach them directly yeah right we can go like like you know let me imagine a spark toro 20 years in the future where it's made a huge impact in the marketing universe and what i hope that it's done is redirect a significant amount of spend away from Google, Facebook, Amazon, toward niche blogs and industry, you know, sources of influence and conferences and events and YouTube channels that individual people have created and, you know, sources of influence of all kinds, news publications, anything you can imagine, podcasts like this one, right? What I want is a universe where there are millions of creators who are doing a great job of providing value in their industry. And they're being rewarded for that value through advertisers who can actually find them and say, I want to do something with you, Charlie, not, well, I'll throw another million at Facebook.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally fair. Interesting. I definitely did not think that that was the type of answer to that question. So I'm (laughs) fascinated. And you've definitely like, my mind is going a million miles a minute with, with other topics. And I want to, I want to kind of come back to a couple of things that you mentioned there, but maybe just to kind of like follow that up for those who aren't kind of familiar with the topic, what is audience research and kind of at a high level, why is it important? Right. You kind of talked about, you know, funneling stuff away from the duopoly or triopoly, whatever we want to call it. But yeah, like what, how do you think what kind of, what is audience research and, and why is it important and why should marketers care about it?
1: In my opinion, if you don't understand your audience at a deep level, you are always going to be at a disadvantage against those who do. So Mm -hmm. if if I, you know, let's say I'm competing in the, um, I don't know, the world of cookware. And if I deeply understand why people buy, who buys, how they buy, where they learn about new products... Uh, where they're getting their information from, what, the, what sources of influence they trust and don't, uh, wh- what what causes, what, what their buyer journey looks like, mm-hmm. right? What causes them to make the, to go from, hey, I'm interested in this to I'm going to think about spending money on this. I'm going to win, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to win on product. I'm going to win on marketing because my knowledge of my customer is greater than anyone else. I saw, a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Charlie, if you've been following the the OnlyFans saga. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, this this last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, a product that I have not personally used. Although same um, for the record, I, <laughs> not
0: well, that there's anything wrong I mean, with that.
1: Look, but... <laughs> I, I I actually I have a lot of strong feelings about. You know, making sex work legal and and reducing the stigma that's attached to sex work and all those kinds of things mm-hmm. uh, doesn't necessarily mean that I personally need to participate in that universe. But, <laughs> but you can you can support something that you don't personally use, right? Yeah. And I was very interested to see this this sort of conversation around the OnlyFans saga, which was essentially for for folks who are not familiar. OnlyFans is a website for creators, similar to YouTube, but Almost exclusively, at least historically, geared toward adult content creators, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, people who post pictures and videos of themselves doing adult-themed things, and then selling access to that via some sort of subscription. Yeah. And essentially, OnlyFans was trying to raise their next round of funding, and they they learned that they could not because of all these bank rules and regulations around adult content, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and so they announced that they were now going to be like, you can put your cooking videos here and like learn how to do skincare on our site, which, of course, yeah, no, no one in their right mind would would reasonably use them for that. And, yeah. and there was all this chatter online of they don't understand their users. They don't understand the core of mm-hmm. why people use them and how people view their brand and what they are about and how to sell and all these kinds of things. Yeah. And I just saw all the tweets that were like, talk to your Users, <laughs> and this is what audience research is about. You know, not yeah. exclusively for adult content subscription sites, yeah. <laughs> but, but for understanding people's motivations, who they are, how they behave, uh, and getting that data at scale mm-hmm. so that you can make intelligent decisions about your product, your marketing, your strategy, uh, individual tactics you want to invest in, individual places where you want to do PR or place an ad or or you know pitch to be on a webinar. That's that's all audience research.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it's funny, one of the things that kind of came to mind that you just said there is at scale by being able to do things at scale, mm-hmm. right? Cuz I think historically we probably think about audience research as like polling, focus groups, that sort of thing, whereas, you know, that that's stuff one aspect. Has value.
1: Yeah. Right. Like that, that, that sort of, you know, micro research for your specific users, right. The people who've already become customers, that is one kind of audience research. Mm -hmm. But for example, you know, this is true for virtually every small and medium business. And I'm sure you've encountered this, Charlie, where essentially you go in and you say, oh, okay, we're currently selling to, you know, whatever, these thousand people have purchased our product. They have these kind of demographics and here's their email addresses and we'll try and study them and do some surveys with them. And what that will get you is an understanding of roughly who's bought from you already. Mm -hmm. But it will not tell you where your biggest opportunities lie necessarily. And it will not tell you at scale do a large number of people who match the criteria of your customers behave the same way that yep. your customers behave. It won't even tell you how your customers behave online and what they pay attention to, right? You can ask questions like, how did you find us? But there's no amount of customer data that will give you great answers to the question, what do they passively subscribe and listen to?
0: Yep, that, totally.
1: That's what SparkToro is really
0: trying to solve. Totally. And I think the, the immediate thing that pops up in my mind is what people say versus what people do are two mm-hmm. very different things. And then that's not even kind of diving into okay, the sample size or bias or all these different things, right? Like when I was working on the brand side, we'd we'd get these things from, you know, a Nielsen, Comscore, like whatever. And it would be like, you know, okay, I'm in Canada. They'd be like 38% of Canadians like video games. And then you kind of like look at the, number one, that's not actionable, but- But number two, the second thing there was when you'd actually go and look, they're like based on a survey with 750 people. And so I'm like, okay, the population of Canada is almost 40 million. And we're going to say this many Canadians actually like it based on this sample size. Like for me, I was always like, that doesn't make me feel confident. That doesn't, that that just wasn't good enough.
1: Now, granted, this is purely the online audience that SparkToro has. So that's, yes. we have 12,243 people who've talked about video games in the last four months on their social profile and are located in Canada. Mm-hmm. Our total coverage of Canada is about uh, a couple million. So you can get a percent of people who not necessarily like video games, but have yeah. actively talked about them. Yeah. And then you can see what they did, for yeah. example, what video games did they talk about? Well, frequently used phrases are five point eight percent Resident Evil, five point one percent Smash Brothers, four point two percent Assassin's Creed, three point eight percent Apex Legends. I think those are all video games. Yeah, those are those are games. Yeah, you're How right. How in the world would you know that? Like, I can't, sure. I cannot fathom. Before Spark tour existed, if you had told me, hey, I need to find out uh, what are the most talked about video games online in Canada. Oh God, that. I mean that project would be months of work, yeah. you know, a couple engineers to go build me some crawlers and like then a profile filtering system and or some social skill.
0: listening, but the APIs are cut off. Yeah, it's just a mess. And <laughs> and on top of that, it's not it, it it didn't have the robustness in terms of the data sets or the relevance or there's no there was bias in it. Like there's so many different pieces. So that's yeah, that's something that came came to my mind that was just like that ability to do it at scale and also observing behaviors because again what people say versus what people do are two very different things. There's a book that I love it's called Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens dewittowitz and it's Everybody Lies Big Data New Data and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. This book I read it absolutely like blew my mind because basically what he's doing is it's like digital kind of economics where he's taking, you know, he's taking different data sets and mashing them together and finding similarities and differences. And, and basically, you know, I think he did his PhD thesis on, on this. And his whole thing is like, everybody lies and here's, you know, here's the the facts kind of behind it of what people are doing and what people are saying on the internet. And it, it was just like a very fascinating thing. And so that's something that obviously with the world becoming more and more noisy and competitive, cutting through that noise to just understand like, what is, what are they actually doing and how can i potentially insert my brand there in a credible way that isn't just like slapping an ad on facebook and trying to ram it
1: down someone's throat just seems like a smart strategy absolutely right yeah. i think that i think that this is one of the things that i love about being able to collect audience data at scale as you can say in our you know canadian video game example here you know we're not we're not trying to determine, hey, let's go poll a bunch of Canadians who talked about video games and ask yeah. them what they read or what podcasts they listen to. We're not going to do that. We're just going to look at their public social profiles. Yeah. And if they have a public social profile and they follow Kotaku, we're going to count them as following that source. Yeah. And hey, you know maybe maybe they scroll past it in their feed, right? When they whatever get a Facebook page updating their feed, or when they get a, see a tweet from them or whatever. But but we know that they're subscribing to it, so we can give you that number, right? We can say like, well, nine point three percent have followed or engaged with content from Kotaku's online presence, and seven point eight percent have engaged with the Game Informer podcast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're asking like, okay, well, where am I going to reach Canadian video gamers? You know, I've got a, I don't know, Mountie and politeness themed video game (laughs) where you attack people with hockey sticks and Molson ice. Well, we, you know, we can tell you where to go get marketing for that.
0: (laughs) That was so, such a Canadian stereotype. I love it. I love it. (laughs) We are are very polite. We
1: do say sorry a lot. Uh, (laughs) But uh, in fact, every time you hit someone with your hockey stick, Sorry. Eh? Well, you actually have to say it. It's a law here
0: in uh, Canada. Think... Whenever you slash someone, you got to actually say sorry after. It's part of the law. Otherwise, the the
1: guys in the red suits come after you. It's, it's one of the, one of the few nations on earth where, as an American, you are technically allowed to uh, talk about stereotypes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this kind of data would be nearly impossible to get at scale without without passive collection, right? Because mm-hmm. to your point, if it's not necessarily, I mean, I think everybody lies. Is a very memeable totally. phrase, but totally. what's really going on is people don't recall exactly where they heard about something. Yeah. You know, they have recency bias. So they're mm-hmm. going to talk about the things that they heard about most. There's some embarrassment of, well, I, you know, I guess I technically listened to, I don't know, the BioWare podcast, but I've heard some negative stuff about BioWare's mm-hmm. you know, brand recently. So I don't want to say that I listened whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think those things are are really tough to work around unless you are collecting data at scale passively. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And
0: I want to touch a bit on strategy, right? Because I feel like audience research is such an important, just research in general is such an important piece of strategy. I feel like a lot of the listeners of of this podcast and clients that I've worked with, brands that I've worked with, customers of of SparkToro, they're trying to build strategy. And and can you kind of talk about like just first, like where does audience research and maybe research in general fit into marketing strategy? I'm kind of on the side of the fence where without research, you don't really have a strategy. Like you're just going on gut. Like how can you do strategy without research? And I always find it interesting when I run into people, they're like, yeah, we're, we're building strategy. I'm like, cool. Like, so like, what kind of research are you doing? Or like, what kind of analysis are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're just building. What do you mean you're just building? Building on what? Like based on your, your own opinion. So I'd love to get your kind of take. Where, where do
1: you sit in that? And how does research fit into that? I think there are Two ways to be great at strategy. One is to have phenomenal intuition and a great deal of luck. <laughs> and, and there are absolutely people who do that. Right. Yeah. Like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that there aren't. Yeah. But you can't just have one of those. Yeah. You have to have both. So tons of intuition from mm-hmm. doing lots of work in the field and having a deep understanding of your audience and probably having lots of conversations with them and getting really, really lucky. And the no. only other way to do it, other than intuition and luck, is to do your homework, right? No. To have the research and to be able to back it up and say, all right, you know what? It turns out that women gamers in Canada are significantly underserved. And we have, through surveys and interviews and passively collective data at scale, found some of the most popular games with women in Canada. And we also looked at similar populations in the United States and the UK and Australia, where there are more women gamers. I don't actually know if this is the yeah, case, but like as a proxy. But let's let's assume it is, and so we can see that it, it's probable that if we hit kind of these vectors we will be able to have a successful video game in Canada with with women audiences. And that's an underserved sector. So our competition is going to be lighter. And so that's the strategy, right? The strategy is we're going to build a product that appeals to this group of people in this region through these ways that we've seen people like them in other similar regions come to a product like this Mm -hmm. and we're going to do it because we know the competition is lower. And then we're going to do lots of tactical things like market to them through the sources of influence that they uniquely pay attention to. Yeah. Like uh, whatever it is. What do I see here? Okay. YouTube gaming channel, fan expo, Mm -hmm. Canada, Ubisoft Toronto, a social media gamer named Jessica Blevins, who apparently is big with women gamers in Canada. So like all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. That you know that that's strategy and it's tactics. And I think that I would rather bet on a data informed, not necessarily data driven, but a data informed plus strong intuition and skills versus luck and intuition.
0: For sure. Well, it's so funny. The thing that you just reminded me of a quote that I forget who said it to me, but it the, the short version of the quote is without data, you're guessing or you're lucky. And eventually everybody else, everybody's luck runs out. That was kind of the thing. Right. And I think like, you know, the word data, I think I like what you just said about data driven versus data informed. Like, I think there, there's a piece of that, like marketing is a balance of art and science. There are both oh, yeah. aspects. And I was able to participate in a, in a conference and a workshop where a guy named Stefan Olander, who used to, he was at Nike for 20 years in, in digital. And he talked about this concept of informed intuition. So using, you know, yes right? That phrase, informed intuition, like that is kind of the holy grail Love of modern it. marketing is like, how are we taking data-backed research? So whether it be stuff with Spark Toro or benchmarking with competitors, looking at mm-hmm. strategy teardowns, like whatever all the different things are, how can we take that, mix that with our intuition that we have of being a marketer in, the, in a specific industry or working at a business or whatever, and pulling out the aspects of both of those that we need to then inform building strategy?
1: I, and, I think that is truly smart and the very best way you can go. I, the reason I don't love being data-driven mm-hmm. is that I think it does not leave room for creativity yeah. and executing on opportunities that you can't prove. Yeah, and I, and I actually think that in many cases, the non-provable but intuition plus some data information behind the scenes that informed intuition, as you say, mm-hmm. is is what leads to the best outcomes yeah, and also the most fun ones. Yeah. You know, I just got to be real. I don't find it super fun to analyze treasure troves of data and build an entire strategic roadmap or tactical plan from that exclusively. Mm -hmm. I like starting from a place of, hey, this is what I'm excited about and passionate about and where I have skills. And now I'm going to go inform myself, what are all the data points that that can help tell me what to do in, in those spaces that I am excited about? Yeah. And I'm going to do those things, right? I'm going to focus on that and I'm going to try and learn from my mistakes, right? So data informed rather than purely data driven i think yeah purely cool. data driven maybe works if you've got you know a huge team of machine learning builders and you're trying to beat the stock market or something right like,
0: sure but i think sure. when it comes to you know digital digital marketing yeah there are a lot of things that data analysis and modeling and you know yeah that can help but i think to your point if we looked at probably a lot of the most successful marketing campaigns to date they, they pulled from both sides. It had to have, you know, really great insight from based on how an audience is behaving or what's working in a specific vertical combined with kick-ass creatives. And I think like, that's something that just comes to mind that, that kind of came up is this divide between brand and performance or like marketers and creatives within marketing organizations, right? Where you have like the creative team being like, I don't care about that. Like I'm going to make something that's, that's cool and creative and whatever. And then the vice versa with the brand person or the the more marketing person being like, yeah, but I have to drive a business outcome here. And there often is like those kind of two different sides within marketing orgs. And I think that delicate balance of like, how can, how can we kind of use this research or these insights to fuel great creative ideas. You know, yeah. here are the kind of guardrails I need, we need something, these are some behaviors, these are some things, now take that and go build something that is a creative masterpiece and let's go test
1: it. Yeah, I mean, so I, I help a lot of people all day, every day with with a lot of what I'd call outreach or, or co-marketing or yeah. influence, no yeah. R, marketing campaigns, right? So essentially yeah. it'll be, hey, here are the sources of influence in my field how can I do something with them where they will promote me without me having to spend a fortune? Mm-hmm. And which is a great question to ask yourself, right? If you know that a bunch of sources are paid attention to and you know loved and trusted by your audience, having them amplify you, having them write about you, tweet about you, do a video about you, feature you on their podcast, have yeah. you present at their webinar, whatever it is, that that is a massively powerful way to have an impact on the audience that you want to reach. Mm -hmm. But coming up with that creative is almost never a purely data-driven process. Mm -hmm. It's a data-informed process, right? You make your list of, hey, here's the sources we want to be in front of. Here are the people we believe, people in publications we believe can amplify us successfully to the audience we want to reach. What could we do to get in front of them? What would make them write about us, talk about us? you know, pitch us to their audiences. Yeah. And answering that question is a creative process. Yeah. It's not a, oh, well, you know what? We're going to look at the last 50 campaigns that they've all, or the last 50 people they've all amplified. And then we're going to see that uh, the most likely reason was controversial news story about them. So let's create some controversy. No, that's bad. Don't do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's funny. The thing that, that comes to mind there is, this analogy in my head of like fish where the fish are. That's like an old, I think like Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett quote or whatever. But like when just thinking about marketing in general, this is something that I often talk to, to our customers about and, and you know friends of mine who are still working on the marketing side is, you know if we use that fishing analogy, fish where the fish are. So figure out like where are people spending time, what influences them, that sort of thing. And then to continue on the fishing analogy is like, that's where you can get creative about what bait should you put on the line and what type of rod should you use? And, you know, that's something that that we're constantly hammering on is like, even with the, the recent, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but like the iOS 14.5 changes, right? And mm-hmm. like advertising advertisers test, yeah. are freaking out. And I have investment analysts calling me, asking me what I think about that. I have marketers being like, you know, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this? And my kind of whole take on it is the fish are still in the same pond. Like, yeah, they made a change. It's just you used to be allowed to use the hook with three different hooks in it. And now you're only allowed to use one. And so it's still early days to figure out what's going to work there. But I think like that analogy of fishing where the fish are, that's what we're doing as marketers, right? Like that's yeah. ultimately what we're doing. And to be a great fisher person, you have to be creative. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. do. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit here because I think, um, you know, this is something that is obviously top of mind for people, marketers specifically going through the pandemic how has the importance of audience research kind of shifted in the past 18 months with the COVID pandemic, right? Like we kind of had, you know, marketing was chugging along and then COVID happened. I remember you did a whiteboard session about like, here's some tips just to keep in mind, like as you kind of pivot your, your strategy. And one of the things that I thought was really, really smart that you said was, you know, cut, use a scalpel, not a chainsaw. If you're going to cut things, like be strategic about it. Over the last 18 months, do you think it's become more important? What, where, where do you kind of sit with that?
1: Uh, it, it's pretty interesting, right? So a ton of economic activity has obviously shifted online
0: yeah.
1: uh, and is probably never going back. Some of those in sectors and geographies where it never had before. You know. So you, you look at a number of late adopting European countries, for example, Italy is a great example of this, yeah. where there just was not a lot of online commerce. People really did not shop online, yeah. even buying plane tickets online was I think still under half of plane tickets were sold that way, which is remarkable, right? So I yeah. think that you're still in travel agent world or like yeah. go to the ticket counter world. But this is uh, something that the pandemic dramatically changed. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's, there's that aspect. And when that happens, you get two things, right? You get massive behavior shift. Meaning, people change what they pay attention to, where they participate, where they go. Unfortunately, we didn't have Sparktoro pre-pandemic. We launched it right, kind of right as the pandemic was was perfect timing, hitting its apex in uh, in (laughs) May of last year. If we had, I'm certain we would have observed what almost every other trend monitoring system did, which is essentially you had this sea change of how behavior shifted. Yeah, and. The other thing that changed in addition to all those behaviors is you have a, a new audience of online users, right? Essentially yeah. people who never really joined social networks all that actively or and, and didn't post about content the way that they do now mm-hmm. and didn't, you know, connect with their friends and family and coworkers in the way that they do now. And now that they are, they are giving whole new, you know, troves of data to these online platforms. And so you're, you're just seeing behavior change, new audience, new sources of influence, all of those rise up. Yeah. And so in, in terms of doing your audience research, if you had solid research pre, prior to the pandemic, it's not that you have to throw it out, but you better update it for yeah. sure, right? If you had yeah. a marketing plan and strategy that really worked well pre-pandemic, ooh, I don't know if it's going to work so great after. Uh, yeah. Or during. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense.
0: And one of the things that when the pandemic hit, just personally, that was top of mind was it's one thing for us to, yeah, that, you know, went into lockdown, all that sort of stuff. I think the big thing that I kept kind of reminding myself is that, like, now we're just building habits. Like, it's one thing if we were locked down for a month, but yeah. like, that you're talking about that behavior change. It's now, it's not just behavior change, it's prolonged behavior change. And that just becomes like, as time goes on, that becomes a habit. And so, you know, I'm not saying like, I think about to your point, like obviously there's been some behavior changes, you know, people who weren't necessarily the most digitally savvy are now doing delivery groceries or like click and collect or pickup. Like that's a big step change. And now they've done that and they've had to do that for, you know, months and months or a year at a time that's now their kind of new normal and that's a habit and that's a big change that presents a commercial opportunity or you know whatever it is or there are other things where connected fitness was a big one like everyone's like oh now that i bought a peloton will i ever go back to the gym yeah maybe but there're also some people that like didn't necessarily know how much they would actually enjoy doing that exercise in in the privacy of their own home and that might be a big draw so like do we know where that's going to end up? Not necessarily, but I think it's important to recognize, hey, there has been, you know, a behavior change here. And it's not just, oh, this is a temporary behavior change. Like when we're talking, you know, 18 months, maybe going on two years by the time that this happens, like we probably are going to see those behavior shifts. And so, you know, from my side, hearing everything that that you said, that just made a ton of sense because yeah, the game has Fundamentally shifted, and sure, there will be probably some things that kind of roll back, just because we probably miss getting together for for concerts and sporting events and like that sort of stuff. But at the same time, like there are things that I do even in my day to day where I'm like, yeah, I I don't miss necessarily walking around the grocery store, and I wasn't necessarily I'm a digital guy, and I wasn't necessarily using click and collect or delivery, and now I do it. I'm like,
1: dang, I like this. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of that is true. I mean, certainly for me personally, I. I think I will be far pickier about the flights that I take and the mm-hmm. in-person conferences that I go to. Yeah. I I haven't been sick in 20 months. That's interesting. I, it's I mean, I used to get sick. <laughs> a lot. Six times a year, seven times a year at yeah. least, right? And yeah. just have a week where I felt terrible yeah. and, you know, my immune system was hit and I just am very susceptible to like colds and flus. And yeah. Wow. It's kind of great not having that, like by not flying on planes or flying with a mask on. Yeah which I'm not sure I'll ever change that again. Why do yeah. I want to be around all those germs? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> like, I Wait, I you think told about me I that. can just wear this thing on my face and then I never, I, I don't have to worry about getting sick. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> I haven't thought about
0: when I was sick. Like you just, I had a big smile because I was like thinking back, like, when was the last time I had a cold? Like, you know, and especially I was traveling a lot for work. Obviously you were traveling for, for work as well. And I'd notice, like, yeah, you'd have those times. I wouldn't get sick, like laid out on my back, but I'd be like, oh yeah, like I have the sniffles and like, I'm kind of gross to be around probably.
1: Just dragging, point, like I haven't it necessarily awful. got it. And then, you know, that it's a ton of money to spend. It's, yeah. you know, it's not great for the environment to have all those flights. Yeah. So yeah, part of me is like, man, I, I probably, I bet I will go down to, three or four conferences a year, even after it all returns yeah. instead of 20 or 30.
0: Yeah, for sure. I want to kind of pivot here a little bit to content marketing. You said on Twitter a while back that the future of, of content marketing is is episodic content. How do you think marketers should be thinking just about content marketing in general right now? And where does audience research fit into that?
1: The reason I'm so passionate about episodic content in particular is because it gives you a chance to build up a catalog of useful, entertaining, subscription-worthy stuff that will bring benefit to your brand and your creation for a long time to come. And I think that that is actually more valuable than single-hit sort of viral pieces, right? If your goal is build up my brand or grow my number of subscribers or uh, rank better in search engines or uh, perform better in social media algorithms or get more people checking out our product who might become customers of it. I think in all of those cases, episodic content is going to perform much better than one-off content, even if the one-off content is technically earning more traffic. And and that is why I urge content marketers to think about how do I get something that turns into a branded series of pieces about a topic or that someone wants to go to again and again. And, you know, podcasts are, are part of this. Uh, YouTube channels are part of this. Um, You know, if you think about a a blog series or a blog that consistently covers a topic and you can kind of rely on it for news and updates and analysis around that topic, I think those are all part of it. You know, Amanda and I at SparkToro started doing this new series called Office Hours, where we, you know, we'll cover a topic as it relates to audience research and, and generally SparkToro. And, you know, we do those every two weeks and the first two have been very, very well attended. And then we turn them into you know, video series that you can you yeah. can watch on the website, you know, there's a lot of advantages to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I love about them is you can stumble into an episode two years after it started. Mm-hmm. And if you really like it, you're going to go back and check out that back catalog. Absolutely. Right? I think that is invaluable versus a, oh, I read this one off blog post. I guess that was what they produce. Cool. I'm done. Yeah, All right, I'm gone. Yeah. I, I never think about that brand again. I don't even remember where I found that yeah. you know, blog post six months from now. Um, What's the
0: one night stand versus dating
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. or, or marriage?
1: Right. Like, I, don't, I don't. always love dating analogies and marketing, but but yes, right. There's there's sort of a um, a single impact. Right. It's like mm-hmm. uh, seeing an ad once as you're driving down, you know, the highway versus I'm an email subscriber to that brand and totally. I get their yeah. emails all the time right one is obviously much more valuable to the brand and a much more valuable connection for that person to your brand makes a lot of sense just thinking about looking forward for you i feel like you're
0: you're a very contrarian thinker like i feel like when everybody's zig <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so i i've been fascinated just chatting with you and and kind of hearing your your take on things i've definitely learned learned a few things just just in the last 40 minutes here when you think about marketing today What are you most excited about? What gets you fired up? Like you've obviously seen and done a lot across the software side of things. You've seen kind of the rise of the duopoly, triopoly, whatever we want to call it. Now you're kind of focused on on audience research and and building out SparkToro.
1: What what gets you fired up when you're thinking about just marketing in general? I mean, (laughs) there's sort of macro level stuff and then micro level stuff. Yeah. So macro level stuff, I get really excited about the potential... And I think it's a bipartisan potential for the first time in the United States for some serious regulation and some antitrust activity. Yeah. I think it would be so exciting to imagine a future where, you know, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp are three different companies, where Google and YouTube and Google Maps are three different companies. Yeah. And the playing field of technology and digital space becomes much bigger. And there's way more opportunities for, you know, a startup to have a chance so that, that excites me. I, I'm also more excited about that because I think that if you break up monopolies and disincentivize monopolies intentionally or not, you incentivize small and medium businesses to get investment, Yeah. right? And so, you know, in my like fantastical 10 years from now worldview, I get really excited at the macro level of, oh man, what if ordinary income tax rates and capital gains tax rates are very close to each other, which is something that, you know, this administration has talked about. And maybe the venture capital field switches to start investing in businesses that are small to medium size, but have a high profitability and rate of return and can survive for a long time. And so we get an economy that instead of filled with a few winners and everybody else is a loser, Mm -hmm. we get tons of small and medium winners. Yeah, That truly excites me, right? Because I hate the trends around income inequality and and wealth disparity. yeah, I think those are really negative. Yeah, At the small scale, right? At the micro level end of things, Charlie, what gets me very excited is helping individual companies and people and creators and advertisers to do their work better in a way that returns to them, that pays dividends very quickly. And this has been one of the super fun things about SparkToro is just, you know, all day, every day, a lot of my work day is just helping people find their audiences and then showing them, you know, oh my gosh, here's all these hidden gems that you never knew about where you could reach your audience and things yeah. that you could do. And it's sort of awesome because it's like, I, I don't know, in, in the SEO world, whenever I was doing this, it was always like, well, we're, we're all at the beck and call of Google, right? We're yeah. all under their foot. They could trample you anytime. If they decide yeah. to put something in search results or they decide to change your title tag, you're screwed. They decide to change your... Uh, SERP so that ads, you know, four ads show above your page. You're you're just at their mercy. And in this world, you're not right in this world. It's really relationship building. If you're an awesome person with a cool product and a cool company, and you find a publication that, you know, reaches your audience, you can make something work, you know, Mm -hmm. that gets me really excited. I love making those connections, showing people those connections. Mm -hmm. It's just fun.
0: Yeah. And I think also like hearing you, it kind of just sounds like undertones and and I don't necessarily know, I feel like this word has been overused, but like democratizing access to things that can actually give them an advantage, a competitive advantage to go go against bigger companies, whether it be, you know, the big giants or even just in their space. Like, hey, I'm, you know, a bakery in this town and I'm trying to, I'm a startup and there's the kind of incumbent and like, I want to go after them because we have a different way of doing things. And yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're a local bakery and you do, you know, bread delivery and you want to compete against, I don't know, Grubhub and Caviar and all of them. Yeah, awesome. Oh my God, I want to help you. And one yeah. of the best ways to do that is to say, you know, Grubhub can't go find in every town what people pay attention to and then, you know, have their founder get on the local podcast. It's not yeah. gonna work. Yeah. But you can. Yeah. That is your competitive advantage as a small, unique local business. Mm-hmm. I love that. I want to
0: continue this line of questioning here just about you, everyone kind of zigging when you zag. I feel like a lot of people, obviously you have a large audience. A lot of people look to you for your take on things. I think for me, when, how I got my start in marketing, I didn't go to university. I was self-taught. I dropped out and I kind of just like immersed myself in it, reading, talking to people, whatever. Reading is a big thing of like, you know, consuming information, following people like you, following others. How do you kind of stay up to date on business and marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Because I feel like a lot of people are obviously following you, but I'm like, how do we go up, up the street, up a level, upstream to be like, who is Rand listening to and thinking like learning
1: from? I mean, the easiest answer to that question is uh, you can click on my Twitter profile and look at who I follow. Yeah. Um, so that that's the simple one, and it's not a big list. Yeah, maybe a. 100 and 120 people. Yeah. But I do really love having conversations with people who've built these unique kinds of businesses. Yeah. So, you know, some folks that uh, in the last few years have, have, you know, been really impactful in my network. Kind of my my entrepreneurial hero right now is, yeah. uh, is Peldi from Balsamic. Mm-hmm. Italian guy built this business in, in Bologna, but it's, it's sort of worldwide. Like, you know, I, I don't know that they have more than three people in a single city Yeah. and, you know, it's this incredible product, but he, he is not trying to massively grow it. He's like, Hey, you know, we have our few tens of thousands of paying subscribers and a few hundred thousand people who are using the product. Maybe it's a couple million and we love our business. You know, yeah. we do really well people recommend us to other folks. We've got this kind of great flywheel marketing engine in in a lot of ways the product is so straightforward and simple, you know, it's a wireframing tool. Yeah. And it it helps other businesses, you know, build their companies. I just love everything about the way that they have uh designed their their business and and I really like him too. You know, it's it's folks like that. I talked to uh, this is a, a random one, but Speaking of our uh, Canadian games thing, yeah. I talked to Ted Gill, who's the um, the CEO at Unknown Worlds. They make a game called Subnautica, okay, which has sold extraordinarily well and, yeah. and been just you know incredibly well received. And yeah, he was you know he was telling me about like how he became the CEO because running this other company in, in sort of classic, you know, tech startup world. And they moved into an office space a few years ago and he knocked on the door of like some game developers next to him it was like, Hey guys, I'm Ted. I just wanted to introduce myself, you know, and that, and eventually <laughs> they built a friendship and they hired him. And, you know, now that company is just, just wildly successful, small team, you know, yeah. 25 people built an incredible product. That's loved by millions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's those kinds of stories, right? Yeah. It's those kinds of people. So I would say a little less the publications. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the ones that I love reading because it has a lot of these stories is Indie Hackers from Portland yeah. Allen. Yeah. Those kinds of things more so than like, oh, you know, I read, I don't know, Search Engine Land or something. Yeah. Right. Not really anymore.
0: So yeah. Like what, if you're thinking about the the people who are listening to this episode, they're primarily marketing strategists. What would be kind of a piece of advice that, that you would give them that they should kind of be keeping top and, top of mind over the next, you know, six to 12 months or something that might just be a piece of career advice? Oh, man. Hard questions
1: here. Hard hitting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, I think one of the best pieces of career advice I could give someone in marketing is to specialize. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think there's a lot of pressure to, you know, oh, well, you don't know about email marketing or, or you don't really understand, you know, digital advertising space, or, you know, you don't get SEO or you're not, you know, deep into content. But I, I actually think you're going to have more success as an individual contributor, generally speaking, if you focus and go deep and you can do really exciting things with that, right. You can become an independent consultant. You can, you know, be a, a high level player at an individual company, you know, that, that desperately needs your your services. Um, And that focus is very hard to compete with as a generalist. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say, oh, I'm a marketing generalist, but I'm just as good at whatever programmatic ads as this specialist over here. Generally, no. And if you're a programmatic ad specialist who works with Shopify businesses in e-commerce, ooh, that's you know what? That's still a huge sector, billions of dollars being spent there. And that level of specialization also incredibly useful. You can build up a great reputation among, you know, a small number of people in that field and have a phenomenal career. Mm-hmm. So I would urge folks to specialize. Like, yeah. you know, I think my specialization for my first 17 years of my career in SEO really helped.
0: Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I think you I was just thinking about times where. Uh, when I was sitting on the brand side of things and I was building teams, you know, I was, I was trying to hire and build out a social team. So the, t- the title, like social media manager is so broad, but I'm like, okay, your background is in social. Are you a content person, a paid person, an analytics person, a community management person? Like, what is that? And so, you know, you're not, you're not going to be good at everything. So I'd kind of always ask People sitting down. Like, what's your like deep specialty? That like your yeah. I know that you're know enough to be dangerous probably in all aspects. But what is like the thing that you are known as like an absolute gangster for?
1: Yeah, man, I like that.
0: Okay, last question for you. I've I've learned a ton from you. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you and and if they have any questions to ask
1: you? Yeah, I am most active uh, on Twitter as I mentioned, where I'm at Ranfish. I also blog, although it's been a slow summer for me on, on the blogging front, um, at sparktoro.com slash blog. And, and of course, you know, if anybody wants to, we, we have a forever free account you can just sign up for and play around with and, you know, do a bunch of searches every month, uh, at sparktoro.com.
0: Cool. Well, Rand, thank you so much for taking the time. I, you're someone who I wanted to chat with for, for a long time and I, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot and I'm sure everybody else did as well. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Charlie. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.